Uh, why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Acts uh, this morning. Acts chapter 18 is where we're at. We've been in a series going through the book of Acts, uh, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. I have a quick little announcement to uh, share with you guys before we jump in. Um, I was actually asked to announce to you guys that our media team, um, if you haven't known, maybe some of you might have known, uh, they've been actually working really hard. One of the things that they came to... Uh, uh, some of us a few months ago, and they're like, hey, we would love to figure out a way to like Facebook Live our church services, just kind of take it, you know, so people beyond here can be impacted and blessed and, you know, or offended um, on, by, by what we do here. Um, and uh, so they were sharing that, and I'm like, that's awesome, go for it, what do you, what do you got to do? They're like, well, you know, gave us a list of things. And so they told me today, today, they, so the past few weeks they've been doing trial runs, so today is actually going to be the first day they're like actually going live. So... Yeah, so you are officially, right? Are we live right now? We're officially live right now. So I don't, I don't know. I, I think they told me you guys can look back there. There's a camera, but I don't think it's actually on you. So um, that's fine. You can say hi if you want. Um, but anyways, that being said, the, the game plan kind of long term would be if, if this you know, consistently is able to be something to be a, a blessing to others, um, the way to access it or the way to let others know how to access it is uh, maybe some of you already know, we have a Facebook page, just uh, if you are you know, one of most Americans that has a Facebook account, uh, just go to Facebook, do a search for Calvary Slow, uh, I think it's like Calvary Slow Church, um, and then that way you'll be in that kind of uh, uh, group there, and you'll know when it goes live, or you can tell your friends, or the video I think will be up there, so you can post that or share it or not with others, um, if you think it's worth sharing. If not, then, then don't share it. Um, but if anything, if anything, like the Facebook page, because it's a unique opportunity for you to kind of get to know what's happening in our church. Um, we do post stuff on our Facebook, uh, on our, I should say on our website, but we also post a lot of stuff on our Facebook or Instagram. So um, those are ways for you to kind of be aware of what happens in our church, the type of events that are taking place, or things, various trainings that we have coming up, so you can kind of know, so you can be a part of those things. Um, it's a way to kind of be part of the community of what's, what's happening here in the church family. So uh, that being said, um, hopefully you guys are already to Acts chapter 18. If you guys don't have Bibles, I think we have some ushers that may or may not uh, get you guys some Bibles. Uh, maybe, maybe they already did. They already did. Gosh, they're so good. So good. Okay, Acts 18. Um, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to basically read through, uh, if you guys were here last week, uh, Nick uh, did a really good job teaching on this passage, uh, so that was, that was a blessing to be able to have him share. He does our high school ministry, he's a great guy, so happy that he was able to kind of teach you guys God's word. So I can just kind of pick up where he left off last week. So he finished with verse 11. We'll do a little bit of um, kind of overlap, but the title of this morning I want to kind of just lead off with is, this is really just kind of a word about following Jesus the king, uh, that's the title, a word about following Jesus the king, kind of uh, a, a mouthful there, uh, but hopefully it'll make sense because uh, really what we see in the book of Acts, in short, is this is the story of the church growing. It's the story of or a biography of how the church began to make an impact upon the world, and it didn't stop at the very end of what we would consider the book of Acts. It's written as like this open, ongoing, unfolding narrative that really, at the end of the day, if you are a follower of Jesus, we're part of this ongoing story. God's using us 
to continue to live forth and communicate and show forth uh, the glories of God's goodness. And so that's the idea that the book of Acts is all about. So um, because it's a narrative, that's the type of uh, book it's written in, uh, we're going to just listen to the story. So what I'm going to have us do this morning is I'm going to just read the passage where we left off last week so you can listen. Uh, There's something unique about just listening to Scripture being read. And uh, I listened to a podcast several weeks ago uh, by the Bible Project guys. If you guys are not familiar with them, you need to be. They're amazing. Um, And they did this great uh, podcast on just the public reading of the Scripture, just giving heed to the public reading of the Scripture, listening to it for the sake of Scripture. See, oftentimes I think we approach Scripture by saying, what can I get out of it? That's not a bad question. But oftentimes, uh, we we should just let the scripture be what the scripture is and ask, how can we enter into that story? So that's that's what I want to do. I'm going to read the passage. Uh, I'll kind of make a few comments. And then what I'll do is I'll finish up with just giving a handful of words, words about uh, concepts that kind of naturally rise in text. So so there you go. Charting course for you. You guys ready to read? Jump in? All right, let's do it. Uh, We're going to pick it up at verse 12. I'll just uh, make my way through to the end of the chapter. Again, it's, it's a narrative. It's a story. So enter into the story. Listen to it. Think about it. If you're unfamiliar with some of the characters, uh, I'll probably briefly pause and just kind of fill you in. So verse 12 starts off. But when Gallio uh, was proconsul of Achaia, which was uh, Greece, uh, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So again, in the ancient culture, this was the leader of the city. Uh, the Jewish leaders who were constantly in conflict with the message, the gospel, that, that Paul, the apostle, who was one of the early church leaders who went around planting churches, uh, they were constantly in conflict with the message that Paul was, was speaking. And so obviously this is, again, sort of the, the typical MO of Paul speaking, getting in trouble, being brought before the proconsul in the city of Achaia or, or ancient Greece. The same type of MO is happening to Paul again. And then it says, uh, as in verse uh, 13, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Uh, But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about the words and names of your own law, see to it yourself because I refuse to be a judge over these types of things. And, to, and he drove them from the tribunal, and he seized uh, Sosthenes, say that word five times fast, you can't, guarantee it, um, the ruler of the synagogue, and he beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio uh, paid no attention to any of this. So uh, what we see real briefly in this little setting here is uh, Christianity was basically viewed by this civil leader as being just sort of a subset of, of Judaism. Now, think about that. Is, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Thoughts? Good thing, bad thing. This guy's rendering of judgment. Good or bad? Kind of? No, no one's answer. That's right. I'll, I'll, I'll just say it. It's actually kind of good. Here's why. Because Judaism in, in the ancient Roman world, so you got you to understand something a little bit about Judaism, or I should say uh, the Roman civil government. So by this time, you had kind of the Roman leaders of, of Rome uh, instituting what they would call kind of like emperor worship. And to be a good citizen in Rome, uh, you had to basically offer these sacrifices or offer incense to, uh, to Caesar. 
So when you would go, say, for example, into the, uh, the marketplace to buy something, let's say you, uh, you grew, uh, you had a beet farm, right? you're like uh, Dwight Schrute in the ancient world. Um, you, you raised beets, you grew beets for a living. So now you're going to go sell beets in the ancient Acropolis. Um, you would have to, as you enter into that marketplace, you would uh, offer some form of incense to Caesar, the, the god. Does that make sense? Uh, because that's how you show your devotion to the great emperor, who is, uh, by definition, on all the coinage, he was the son of God, right? Um, now, let's say, for example, if you're like, I refuse to offer incense to Caesar. What you're doing is you're basically not only destroying and crushing your business, right? Uh, you're also uh, separating yourself from the rest of the culture, and you're basically saying, I'm against the civic religion, I'm against Caesar, I'm against this whole thing called Rome, and uh, at, at worst, you'd possibly be, be killed. At best, uh, people would think that you're nuts, you're crazy, uh, they would think that you have a curse on you, they wouldn't want to buy your, 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 your beats because they might be bad, because you are refusing to join in the civic religion of, of Rome. Now, uh, within the Roman Empire, there was uh, kind of an easement, or an allowance, I should say, given to Jews. They, they were allowed to worship God. Now, now, Jews were, or I should say, the, the Romans were very pragmatic. They weren't always necessarily interested in just simply making demands. They were also pragmatists. They wanted to make sure that there was peace. So they realized that Jews, good Jews, were very dogmatic on not offering incense or sacrifice or worship to any other God, even, at, if, even if that God is Caesar. So uh, the Romans actually made an allowance for the Jews to actually withhold offering these, these uh, incense sacrifices to Caesar. So that was a really good thing. So Christianity comes on the scene, and so the question is, is Christianity an entirely different religion than Judaism, or is it sort of a subset? Because later on in Roman history, we, we do know that uh, Christianity, as it kind of grew further away from its roots within Judaism, it was viewed as an entirely unique and separate and distinct religion. In fact, I don't know if you knew this or not, but most Christians in the early first uh, three or four centuries, when they were brutally murdered, they were murdered with this accusation. You ready? They were accused of being atheists. You're like, what? How in the world were they accused of being atheists? Here's, here's the way it worked. In Rome, they had this pantheon of gods, massive amounts of gods. So as long as you worship this from this menu of Rome-approved gods, you're good. But let's say you walk in and you're like, I don't believe in those gods. You are, by definition, an atheist. You are, you are looking at the gods, which is the word theist. Uh, you're looking at the pantheon of gods and saying, I don't believe in them. I disbelieve in their gods. So they would basically say that you are worshiping a, a, a false god or a god that's not part of our pantheon. So uh, later they would be killed. So anyways, this being said, this is a good thing that was going on, that there was some level of allowance being made to Christians. And it's really unfortunate for the, for the Jews there because they felt like their uh, faith was being diluted. So that being said, I'm going to keep moving on and uh, keep reading. Verse 18, it says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer. And when he spoke, or when he took leave of the brothers, and he set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila at Centre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Now, scholars totally disagree on exactly what this vow was. I'm not even going to speculate, but Paul took a vow, and it involved a haircut, apparently. And uh, 
they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, and he himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews, and when they asked him to stay for a little longer period, he declined, uh, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return if the Lord wills, and he set sail from Ephesus, and then he landed in Caesarea, and he went up to greet the church, and he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed, and when he uh, went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Verse 24, last section. Now, a Jew named Apollos, he was a native of Alexandria, he came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And he began to speak boldly in a synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, uh, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples and welcomed him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those through grace who had believed. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was, or that the Christ was Jesus himself. Okay, so this is God's word. And uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in, taking a look at this. So God, thank you for your word. We ask you right now that you would uh, help me to be able to speak clearly uh, and accurately, God, and to portray and put forth Christ in a way that's uh, uh, clear and understandable and relatable, God, that we can understand what you are doing and what you're up to within our lives and even beyond our lives, God, within not only our city, on the central coast, and God, within this world at large. So, Lord, we invite you right now to transform and to reshape our thinking, our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts. God, take our hearts, we pray, and do with us as you choose. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I want to jump in first by looking at a map, all right? You're, you're welcome. We're going to look at a map. So uh, I want to just give you a little bit of a, a, an idea as to kind of where we're at, what we're looking at. So we read a lot of different names of places that were probably unfamiliar to you. They're definitely unfamiliar to me. So I want to kind of go back and just look at these real quickly. So that big pink circle uh, within that is kind of the frame of reference in which the passage that we just read kind of occupies. So if you look all the way over to the far left and you see over there like Corinth and uh, Centrea, that was a seaport, Athens. Um, Paul would have taken a, a ship all the way over to Ephesus. If uh, you're familiar with this whole region over here in the very middle, that would be modern day. Anybody, any guesses? Modern day, what? Turkey, someone said that. Who said that? It's always Turkey. Anyone say that? Good job. Congratulations. No one wants to claim it. Uh, Turkey, yes, modern day Turkey. Um, there's an ancient city called Ephesus. Uh, we're not going to talk too much about that because that will be coming up, reappearing within the passage again uh, later on, chapter 19. It's this massive city. So Paul was there. He wasn't there very long. And then he leaves Ephesus, goes down to Caesarea. It's called Caesarea Maritima uh, within the region of, of Israel. Um, and then he went back up to the city uh, towards, uh, called Antioch, which is kind of in, in uh, that region of, of modern-day Syria. So that's where Paul was, and then he kind of begins to make his lap back through kind of those regions that he'd been involved with before. So that's a little bit of a, a, a visual as to what we have been uh, reading about. So what I want to do is I want to just kind of look at uh, four different words that I, I think that kind of come up naturally in a text that we read through. And I just want to make a few brief statements about them, and then, then we're done. So I want to give a word about fear. I want to give a word about being engaged, what it means to actually be engaged 
with, uh, with life and what God's calling us to do, with what God's up to in this world. I want to give a word about your future, because that, that's important, how you think about your future, uh, how you think about where your life is headed, the decisions you're making right now, the things that are on your mind, occupying your energy and your thoughts and your concepts right now, that's important. And then I want to talk a little bit about a word uh, about the path that you follow. What, what does it mean to actually follow a path? Whose path are you following? Uh, who are you a disciple of? What is shaping your heart, your desires, your emotions, your affections? What path are you on? So let's talk a little bit about each one of these, and they all kind of are rooted within the passages that we just read, except for the first one, which I'll backtrack a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about a word of fear, a word about fear. So in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 to 10, we didn't read this, uh, but this was taught on last week. I'm going to reread this because this actually plays into the rest of the passage. Um, I'll just read it and listen to it. It says, The Lord then said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. So what's going on here? Well, if you remember, Paul is actually in a, in a brand new city. It's called Corinth. And Paul actually spent a, a year and a half in the city. Um, that's kind of shocking if you know anything about Paul's itinerary. Uh, Paul was one of these guys that could not stop and stay in any place for any length of time. I mean, Paul was constantly uh, moving and uh, traveling from one spot to the next. And he would go into one spot and he'd maybe be there for a few weeks. Or he would be preaching and he'd get himself run out of the city because he was always running into some level of trouble or maybe even restlessness. Meaning he's constantly feeling like, i got to go plant other churches and be about God's work. So Paul was always moving. And so in this particular setting, we see that Paul actually spent a year and a half here. Now, it wasn't always easy. There were challenges that Paul had. Now, in some of the past cities that Paul had been a part of, uh, he would either have been beaten. There was uh, several occasions where Paul was actually drugged, or one occasion in particular, Paul was actually drugged out of the city and literally stoned to death. Um, so if you can imagine, kind of a mob rule, chaos, and Paul at the very center of this. Guys with, uh, you know, passionate guys with big stones in their hands being hurled down upon Paul, Paul being left for dead on the outside of the city. Uh, you'd imagine Paul's body, no doubt, bore the marks of bruises and uh, all sorts of other uh, 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 maladies within his body and scars and whatnot. So here's Paul in a brand new city, and no doubt he's wrestling through uh, what, what the future is going to look like. And, when, and God speaks to him. So typically what you see in scripture, when God speaks a word like this, it's usually always in response to something. So it'd be safe to assume that Paul, no doubt, in this context, was, was really afraid of something. We don't know exactly what it is. Again, we're not going to speculate on what the passage is not stating. But no doubt, Paul was deeply afraid of something. And again, we can draw from the passage that not only was Paul afraid, but Paul was also probably on the verge of leaving. Because whatever the fear was that was stimulated within his heart, it, it led him to kind of feel, like, i got to leave. i got to be out of this place because something really, really bad, something ominous, something horrible, something horrific is going to happen, and I'm going to be in the center of it again. So, again, you might describe this as like PTSD. Again, Paul has been, uh, unfortunately, within context where he's been beaten before, hurt, wounded before, left abandoned, whatnot, and Paul's probably rehearsing some of these past memories in his mind. So again, those of you that have had experiences like that, you can totally relate to this sense of crippling fear, all right? I ask for a show of hands, but the fact of the matter is, uh, a lot of us, all of us, to some degree, have things that are, are fears in our hearts, they cripple us, they paralyze us, they keep us in a spot where we cannot move on, can't keep going, 
And it's in the midst of that that God speaks to Paul and says, don't be afraid, Paul. And God doesn't just drop this empty promise or empty command, I should say. God drops his command based upon this presupposition. He says, because I'm going to be with you. For I'm with you. This is an amazing promise that God's making to Paul. Like, Paul, I know right now you feel abandoned, you feel alone. I was thinking about fear. That fear most often is rooted in a sense of loss or aloneness or alienation, that you're, you're separated, you're in the margins, you're off, you're forgotten. People don't know who you are. People abandon you. And there's always that sense of, like, wondering, what's, gonna, what's the future going to look like? Will I be without? Will I always live without ever being married or having a relationship or being in a sense of community where I can share my heart, where I can be known, where I can know someone on an intimate level? Will I always be without having a child? Will I always be without having a job? Will I always be without something? You fill in the blanks. And what happens oftentimes is fear begins to fill in those empty spaces in our lives. And it cripples us. And it's an amazing thing to think about that, that Paul, this great, iconic church planner that is within the scripture that we read about, we're always kind of thinking of Paul as like walking three feet above the ground like he's a super saint. And the fact of the matter, he's a human being just like you and I. He faced similar types of fears, probably had some level of PTSD that he was remembering past experiences, past events that left him in this moment, in, the, in, his, in his moment that he was occupying crippled by fear, and it's in that moment that God speaks, don't be afraid, Paul. I'm with you. Maybe for some of you, that's a word that, that God right now in this moment has for you to, to put on, to speak into your heart, to say into your heart, to speak to those fears. I mean, for me, one of the things I've discovered is that fears sometimes need to be named, they need to be claimed. When you're able to actually play out those fears and speak it, say it, identify it, recognize it, and then ultimately bring God into the very midst of that. God, you are greater than fill in the blank. You are greater than this thing that could happen. You are greater than the diagnosis. You are greater than the prognosis. You are greater than this insanity or loss. You are greater and above and beyond all these other things. And, and, and Paul receive this word from God, and he says, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. I think this is God's word to Paul saying, keep going, Paul. I'm with you. I haven't forsaken, haven't abandoned you. I will always be with you. Keep doing what I've called you to do. There are many in the city that, that I've called to come unto me. So uh, that's a little bit of a word about fear. Secondly, I want to look at a word about being engaged. Uh, as we move on, uh, we see kind of the story playing out, and we see picking up around verse 18, just a handful of things. I'll kind of give you some bullets uh, on these. Like we see that Paul, in verse 18, he stays many days. What's he doing? Just chilling, hanging out, you know, uh, on the beach, coconut. I mean, Paul's actually engaged. He's connected with the people. Uh, Paul had this real deep sense of purpose and mission. Like, Paul uh, was, I mean, probably almost to a fault. I mean, my guess, I think if you were to, like, do modern-day, like, um, uh, personality tests on Paul, Paul would no doubt be, like, this type A, super uber-driven personality that's just, like, constantly cannot stop or rest. He has no idea what it means to slow down. Paul was probably that type of guy that was always working, always had an agenda. He was probably one of those guys that was hard to keep up with. Have you ever met those guys? 
Met those gals, right? You are friends with them, and they're always like five or six steps ahead, and they're always sitting around like, come on, come on, rip. Uh, it's probably Paul, the apostle. But Paul also lived with this very uh, real sense of engagement. He recognized that God had his hand on every moment of his life. And wherever Paul was, he wanted to be fully, completely present uh, with those that are around him, to serve, to love, to be aware, to be open to what God is wanting to do, how God is wanting to use him, to speak through him, to speak to him in those moments. So we see that in verse 18 that Paul stayed many days. Uh, later on in verse 18, it says, Paul set sail for Syria, and with him he was, was uh, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, I think it was probably touched on a little bit last week as to who these people are. They're really uh, just an important figure, or two figures, I should say, husband and wife team within uh, the story of the book of Acts that had a very significant role uh, within Paul's life, but also within the lives of other people. We'll read about it in a moment. But Paul's with these guys. He's engaged with them. He's probably learning from them. He's teaching them. He's communicating. These are kind of like travel companions. Verse 19, we see that Paul went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. So again, Paul, uh, he was now entering into a brand new city. Paul, as he enters into a brand new city, he's not just wandering aimlessly like, like I would do, looking for a really good coffee shop. Paul had this deep sense of purpose, like, okay, where's the synagogue? There's people here that God wants to uh, show who Jesus is. So Paul has this deep sense of uh, living in that moment and being deeply connected uh, with the heart and mind of God within those moments. And then finally, we see in verse 22 that Paul greeted the church in Caesarea. So when Paul makes his way back to kind of this main uh, uh, area of, of, of Israel and uh, Caesarea, and he makes his way back up to his main sending church in Antioch, Paul is deeply connected with these people. It's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, Paul was as close to like an entrepreneur, probably would no doubt was like this entrepreneurial type hearted guy that he again went out, planted churches. Paul could have been this guy that was completely independent, uh, didn't need anybody, didn't need anybody to speak into him, didn't need anybody to talk to him, didn't need any support from any outsiders. Paul could have been this radical, independent, arbitrary type of a guy, but Paul was deeply not that. He was deeply connected to ascending church, deeply connected to whatever type of relationships that were formed and forged there and authority structures and relationships that were part of that. Paul was connected. Paul was not just randomly uh, disconnected to everything that was going on. He was very aware. He was very engaged, not disengaged, very engaged with what God was up to in his world. And again, as I, as I read this, I'm, I'm challenged. And the way that I'm challenged by this is just think about how do I live my life? How do we live our lives? What level of engagement do we have? Um, you know, again, obviously, one of, the, one of the deep, deep, dark, and I mean like black hole dark downsides of social media is it creates this alternate universe where we get sucked in. And the one word that would, I would use to describe it is radically disengaged. That's two words. But the word of being just radically disengaged, we're disconnected. I mean, it's, it's crazy. You can walk into a coffee shop or be at a, an airport, which I was this past week, several of them, and just realizing, like, you look around, and people are not engaged, they're not talking, they're not connected, they're not looking in eyes of other people sitting across from them. They are on their phones, completely disengaged. Like, is he talking bad about constantly being on social media? Yes! Yes! That's exactly what I'm saying. Don't disengage from this world that God puts in front of you. It is Always, every moment, a gift from Yahweh to you because he loves you. 
For you to be a part of what God is calling, what God is up to in this world, to be aware of it, to be asking him, God, how do you want me to be aware of people around me? Are there people in this room? Are there even people right now in church, in this community, in this gathering, right now that you're sitting next to, that are hurting, that are troubled, that are going through tough times? I think a tendency for us, because social media is really, really, for the most part, it's about me. It's about me putting my best foot forward, posting my best photos of me and of my family, the ones that look the best. Obviously, would never post something that would, would be uh, uh, something that would put me down or make me look in a bad light. But the fact of the matter is, it really, it's, think about it, it's about me. It's about me as the center of my life. And what ends up happening is that becomes this black hole that turns me off, shuts me out from true engagement with others around me that may be hurting that may need love, that just need a, need a word of encouragement, a word of hope. Maybe you're the one that needs a word of encouragement, a word of hope, a word from God to speak peace into your life. Maybe those are the things. And, but, but again, if we are a community that's disengaged by way of all forms of distractions, there's no way, absolutely no way, we can fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love God and to love our neighbor by being present. I mean, isn't that the heart of the gospel? That God, God, I mean, think about this. God stepped into our mess, this mobile home trailer messed up, broken ghetto we call earth, to love us, to care for us, to show us truly what self-sacrificial love looks like by dying on the cross, by taking our guilt, our sin, our shame, our brokenness upon himself. He wasn't disengaged. Radically engaged. And this was actually quite shocking when it came to the pantheon of all other gods from the ancient mythological worldviews. Most ancient gods, the only time they were ever engaged was when they were throwing a lightning bolt down on those that they hated, or when they were destroying or creating a tsunami or something, some cataclysmic destruction upon humanity. That was their form of engagement, not Yahweh. Yahweh's form of engagement is to say, I'm here to rescue. I'm here to show you the depth, the breadth of my love for you. That's the type of God we have. He's radically engaged. So Paul, I think, was trying to live in a way that was radically engaged as well. So that's kind of how I see within this little second section here. So a word about being engaged. The third thing I want to look at, we're almost done, is a word about your future. Take a look at verse uh, 21 where Paul is writing, uh, or Luke is writing about Paul. He says, but on taking leave with them, he said, I will return if God wills. So as I think about this, this is, this is a phrase that, that, that Paul throws out. It's a phrase that's actually common within the New Testament. And I'll, I'll read another passage in just a second here. But I want you to think about this. That, that phrase, if God wills, should actually be on repeat, the way I wrote up there, uh, 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 for a Christian's vocabulary. should be something we use all the time, if God wills. God wills. This is what God wants. I mean, it doesn't have to be like, if God wills. It's not like a mantra. It's not magic words. But some variation of that. If God wills, if God desires, if it's God's purpose, whatever. How do you want to think about it? But the main general idea is it's actually deeply connected to the very beginning portion of the chapter and the very ending of the chapter. So I want you to look at this real quickly. So take a look at verse, uh, chapter 18, uh, verse 5. And then uh, you can hold your finger there and look at the very last verse of chapter 18. Let me read these. Chapter 18, verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy, they arrived from Macedonia, Paul, so back to Paul, the character Paul, uh, he was occupied 
with the word. So he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching the Bible, testifying to the Jews that the Christ, the Christ, the word Christ uh, is a synonymous term with our modern day English term, uh, king. That, that the king is Jesus. That's what Paul's message was. Now turn to the very last chapter, or last verse of the chapter. Uh, this is now Apollos. He is, uh, we'll look at him in just a second. Apollos is now the character that uh, is being written about him. It says in verse uh, 28, For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So there's a theme going on here. And the theme is this. It's the theme that we've been constantly going back to and over and over again. The theme is pretty simple and yet radically profound. And it's this. Jesus is the king. So again, I, I realize in modern day context, uh, we don't think too much about what a king is uh, or how to respond to a king because we don't have one. In fact, again, we just celebrated 4th of July and that was kind of like our official, we're done with kings, right? It's over, all right? Our marriage, our relationship, we're breaking up for good. We're never getting back. The idea of kingship is just something that's foreign to us. You know, 241 years later. Is that right? 241 years later? Whatever, you get the idea. But we don't think too much or highly of the concept of king or even think about it, period. So the idea, the whole framework within Scripture is that Christ, Jesus, Jesus is king. He's king over all things. And what that means is that he has or he ought to have the final word over all things. In our lives, over our lives, over our past. And that means that, again, this, this is radically life-changing. If you allow Jesus to have the word over your life, even your past, let me show you practically how that plays out. Because for some of us, you think about your past a lot. You think about the pain, the hurt. You rehearse it over and over and over again. The, the loss, the grief, the brokenness, the sin, the defilement, the things you did that you're ashamed of. So you live in a momentary present state of grief and pain and guilt and shame. But I'll tell you what, if Jesus is king, do you understand what this means? It means that he's also Lord of your past. It means that he said of your past, of your sins, of your brokenness, of your defilement. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. So sometimes we say things like this. Well, I get it. Jesus forgave me, but I don't know if I can ever forgive myself. Let me, let me just break this down, that phrase, that, that concept down one, one further time. When we say something like, I can't, I can't forgive myself. I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. What we're basically saying is that the, the decree in the universe that comes from Jesus says, your past is forgiven. We're, we're actually saying there is another decree that's higher than, greater than that, that decree of Yahweh, and it's the decree of me. Do you, do you understand that? We're basically saying God's decree is high, my decree is higher, and I haven't forgiven myself. But when we receive from God the gift of forgiveness, that he is king, he is Lord, and his decree in Christ because of the cross, because of trust in his finished work. When he says all is forgiven, all is washed, all is cleansed, all is made new, the past, present, future, that's freeing. That breaks you, it severs you from the, the shame and the guilt from the past, and it frees you to live not only in the present, but to live for the future, to receive from God all that he has for you. So one final thing because this kind of plays into the future, is that what about our future? What about what, about what, what has not yet happened or not yet transpired? 
And I think the way that we read this within the passage, if Jesus is truly king of our lives, then really the way that we should be thinking about our lives is, God, if, if you will. So sometimes people ask these questions like, well, then should we not have a five-year plan or a three-year plan or a 10-year plan? There's some people that get really kind of crazy on this and they're like, no, not at all. Just live in the moment. Don't make plans for your life. And I would suggest that's, that's kind of silly. It's kind of like woodenly legalistic, honestly. Um, there's nothing wrong with making plans for your future. Make plans for your future. I like to say it this way. Make plans for your future. Write them down in pencil and give God the eraser. Like, let God do what he wants to do. If he wants to edit it, if he wants to reshape it, if he wants to completely take out an entire paragraph and put in something else, let God do that. Let him, let him have the authority that, that he already has. That's, that's why I think Paul would say, uh, if, if God wills. Now, listen to how James um, would, would write about this, and then we'll move on to the next one. Next slide. Uh, James says this. Uh, chapter 4, verse 13, he says, uh, To you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, yada, yada, yada. Uh, why do you not know, uh, uh, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? He says, you are a mist that appears for a while, and then it vanishes. So just think about that for a second. He's basically, he's not, he's not you know, diminishing your worth. He's just simply pointing out the reality. Like, like look. Life is a vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. I mean, sometimes when we face tragedy in our lives, whether it be a loss or someone dies or someone becomes mortally ill, uh, those become moments that cause us to stop, to pause, to breathe in, to be aware, to be awake. Our senses are made alive to the fact that life in its present state is radically fragile. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. And it's a good thing because oftentimes we're lulled into believing that we're invincible, that life is disposable, that no matter what I do in life, it doesn't really matter. And I am just to live for this very moment and never thinking about the future, never thinking about long term. But what we see within scripture is radically this idea that it's very fragile and it vanishes. Instead, in verse 15, it says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord's will, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So, again, I think the takeaway or the lesson or to think about this word on this subject of your future is to live with this phrase or some variant of this phrase in your vocabulary. Let it become part of a new way of thinking and framing your life, framing your future, framing your moment. Uh, just, okay, if God wills. If this is something that God has for me. And why? Why should we anchor this new vocabulary into our lives? If Jesus is king, then it would make sense. He's a king. He, he has all authority. He's sovereign over all things. But he's a good king. He's not a tyrant. He's not filled with rage and wrath and attack us should somehow we step out of line. He is a good, loving father, the way Jesus describes him. So, Lastly, let's talk about a word about the path uh, that you and I follow. All right, we've got to talk about this, and we'll wrap this up. Acts chapter 18, verse 25, uh, we're introduced to uh, a new character. His name's Apollos. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about him. A couple things we know about is that he was from Alexandria, which means, uh, for those of you that, that may not know, Alexandria had the, the largest um, library in the ancient Roman world. Massive, massive 
uh, library, largest. Um, so no doubt, I think this is the way in which Luke is telling us uh, this guy, Apollos, was really, really educated, really smart. He was a smart guy. Secondly, uh, we see that he was eloquent when he opened the scriptures. He, wa he was able to speak winsomely, able to speak in such a way that not only uh, had a lot of knowledge, understanding, but he was able to, to make a message that was uh, interesting uh, rather than you know, boring. And it was something that kept people's attention. So we read some of these things about him. And that we're told that he was competent in the scriptures. Um, but we're told within the story, let's just read the story now. Paulus had been instructing the way of the Lord. Though he only knew the baptism of John. And then we're told that this, uh, this, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, they took him aside and they explained him the way of God more accurately. So what does it mean uh, he was instructing the way of the Lord uh, and that, was, that would have been only the baptism of John? So uh, this kind of raises a lot of questions as to like, what is actually really going on here. Like, like who is this guy, Apollos? What was the message that he was preaching? Um, well, it would seem, again, there's not uh, uniformity in terms of like, exactly what this meant. Um, there's a lot of broad spectrum in terms of how people have come to interpret this, but here's my take on what I think is happening here, is I think probably Apollos had been aware of John the Baptist, bapt baptizer, right? And had been aware of the ministry that John had started, and that John was basically preaching a message saying, prepare the way of the Lord, uh, that, that my cousin, Jesus, is going to come on the scene, he's going to do good things and whatnot, and so at some point, perhaps Apollos was around or had heard the message of John the baptizer, so John, or, or Apollos, left with this message of hope, this message of baptism, of repentance, of making one's heart right towards God and being open and being prepared for God, and may even had some level of understanding who Jesus was, that Jesus preached, he uh, fed 5,000 people, he did miracles, he opened the eyes of the blind, he was, in essence, in other words, a fulfillment of some of these ancient Old Testament passages. But my, my guess would be that Apollos did not know the full story of Jesus, uh, again, word traveled slowly. They didn't um, uh, have, have Twitter back then. Um, and so when word traveled, again, obviously it was like by camelback or horseback at, at fastest. And so here's Apollos, an entirely different part of the world, uh, very far away from the very uh, epicenter of this movement that was happening with the life of Jesus. And uh, so he obviously didn't know the, the fullness of what was going on. And so he, we're told that he had been instructing the way of the Lord. So I, I wanna, I'm going to briefly look at this phrase uh, the way of the Lord, because it's really fascinating. All right, the phrase, the way of the Lord, actually appears all throughout Scripture, and it's actually contrasted on several levels with, uh, for example, um, in the book of Jude, uh, the way of Cain. If you, if you know who Cain is, Cain uh, slayed uh, his brother uh, Abel, and he was the son of Adam and Eve. Uh, so if you're familiar with that story, there's another guy by the name of Balaam. We're told about the way of Balaam. Uh, we're told about the way of unrighteousness. We're told about the way of death. Uh, there's there's this, this, this contrast that's constantly going on. So another way to think about this, throughout Scripture, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 17, uh, describes the way the Lord is being like or akin to the way of peace, way of shalom. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it describes the way of righteousness. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, it says the way of truth. Uh, or another one, or the way of salvation, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. So in other words, the point is, is that these phrases are all kind of synonymous with each other. The way of the Lord, whatever that is, we'll look at it in a second. The way of the Lord is synonymous with peace, righteousness, truth, salvation. You guys, you guys, you guys doing good? You hanging in there? Following so far? All right. Let's take this one final uh, degree. So in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, God describes about Abraham. He says, for I've chosen Abraham 
that he may teach his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So again, that theme plays into whatever the way of the Lord is, whatever the path of the, the Lord is, the way of the Lord, the path, the direction of your life, uh, it involves righteousness and justice, doing right. And again, several weeks ago, several months ago, we actually did an entire message just on what righteousness and justice is, so I'm not going to get back into that right now. But the point of the matter is, these are all synonymous phrases with the concept of the way of the Lord. And again, uh, Apollos had known the way of the Lord. Whoever he was, whatever we know about him, we know this. He followed the way of the Lord only up to the point of John the Baptist. So next slide. Take a look at one other passage, and we'll kind of bring this around and we'll be finished. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3, we get a little bit more of a nuance in terms of understanding what this concept of the way of the Lord is. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3 says this, the voice of one calling in the wilderness. This would have been a reference to John the baptizer. So again, we're kind of circling back around to John. A uh, voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare what? The way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So what you got to understand a little bit about the idea of the, the, this path, the word way can also mean like the, the road or the pathway of God. So the way of God is distinct from the way of unrighteousness or the way of death or the way of Balaam or the way of Cain or the way of whatever type of vice or problematic scenario within life. Um, but the way of the Lord is an important thing. But what we see here in this passage is that the way of the Lord takes on a whole other dimension. Because what we're told in Isaiah is that this idea, whoever the way of the Lord is, is not just simply a bunch of precepts and ideas and religious observances to keep. That the way of the Lord is actually personified. It's Jesus. This is the big idea. This is the big breakthrough that the New Testament begins to unpack and unfold. The way of the Lord, whatever that is. The way of life, the way of salvation, the way of peace, the way of truth. The, whatever the way of these things are begins to be, come, come into sharp contrast, greater clarity with the New Testament passages. The way the Lord has to do with a person, that Christ, Jesus, is the way of the Lord. So what does it mean to follow the way of the Lord? Because as we see, why don't we go back to that little, that, that passage uh, that says that Apollos, I'm sorry, that Priscilla and Aquila, so the last slide if you could please. It says this, um, last part of verse 26. It says, Priscilla and Aquila, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So what does that mean? I think what it means uh, is Priscilla and Aquila filled in all of his blanks in terms of this is about Jesus. And that Jesus didn't just do good miracles. Jesus didn't just feed hungry people. Jesus didn't just open eyes. Yes, he did all this and more. But what we know about Jesus is that he also had a path that took him to the cross, Roman crucifixion, that took him into the grave, death and burial, and being resurrected, and that he's now ascended at the right hand of God for the purpose of establishing his reign and righteousness and his kingship and his shalom over all things. And what we see with regard to this guy, Paulus, is that he, he receives this word by receiving the trueness, the, the, the truest reality of who Christ is. One final thing I'll say, and I'll finish on this, is I love the way that these guys, Priscilla and Aquila, approach Apollos. So again, think about it this way. Here's, here's this guy, Apollos. He's preaching an accurate message about Jesus, but it's not complete. There's, there's lots of details that are lacking within a story because lack of information, lack of awareness, what, whatever. And I love how Priscilla and Aquila, they don't like start a blog and they're like, no, Apollos was a heretic. We need to expose him. 
Their idea is to not write a book and somehow publicly shame him. Their aim is to pull Apollos aside in love and be like, hey, let's chat a little bit about your, your message because it seems like there's some things that you're missing. Let's tell you a little bit about Jesus and how Christ has come to fulfill the righteousness, the justice, the truth, the peace, the salvation of God, that this is not just God sending a bunch of data saying, follow the data, but this is God sending his son saying, follow my son and you'll live. And Paulus does. So, in short, what are you following? What voices shape? What voices have you allowed to speak into your heart, to inform you, to shape your understanding of, of, of life, of your future, of your sexuality. What, what voices get to have airtime in your head that get to speak, that get to teach and coach and counsel and guide and comfort or seduce or crush or oppress? What are those voices? My suggestion would be that you would see Jesus as king over all things. Over all things. That he's a good king. And everything he always proclaims and describes and informs and invites us into always leads to righteousness, justice, salvation, shalom, truth, hope. He's a God that's present, not absent. He's a God that's Totally committed, not indifferent. He's a God that's engaged, not disengaged. So let this be a word to think about, to consider, to meditate upon as we wrap up. So I want to invite you to respond and to receive. Always, when we look at God's word, it always elicits some response from us. And when you think about this, if he truly is a king over all things, He's not just some sort of arbitrary, disconnected king, but he's a king that deeply loves you. What type of response would you say is congruent with that? Worship, gratitude, praise, honor, love, affection, tears, whatever. Think about it. So I want to invite you to respond. So why don't we all stand? And we're going to sing a few closing songs. We're going to respond by partaking in communion. We do that every week as a way of reminding ourselves of the meal that Jesus invites us to. Christianity is not about God inviting us to a bunch of ideas and principles to somehow uh, abide by. There, there are ideas and principles to abide by. Don't, don't get me wrong. But Christianity primarily is about a God that invites us to a table and says, you're welcome here, no matter who you are. No matter how broken you are, no matter how messed up you are, no matter how defiled you feel, no matter how out of place you may look at others at the table and think, I don't belong, God says, you belong. You belong. Respond to this great king that is deeply engaged, not in the affairs of lives out there, but in your life, right here, right now.